morning, Petra. Good morning to you, Victoria. How are you? Good. I go with either. Vicky's normally what people call me, but it's like Victoria on a Sunday. I think Vicky on the rest of the days of the week. So how are you down there? Have you got any snow? We don't have snow, but we have um, freezing fog, which is still, still out there. That's not good. Yeah, we've we've had quite a bit of snow this week, and we've got another sprinkling this morning. So I've probably got a couple of inches of snow on the ground at the moment. No, we had um, one um, few weeks ago. We had our snow came down, and uh, but it's interesting because we'd had very very heavy torrential rain overnight. It then turned to snow. Um, sort of what you might call the rush hour, you know, 7 a.m. sort of started. And uh, I was having to drive over to, um, to Lebanon, which is where, the, uh, where my um, electrologist is. And um, I was quite surprised um, listening to the radio as I left home, and they were talking about floods and that. As I got, got on the road, I suddenly realised that, yes, the roads were flooded in quite a few places. And there <laughs> um, had been a tremendous downpour. And of course, you had the snow as well, which was then to return to slush. And, uh, yeah. They put an interesting drive. Typical British winter weather, slush and snow and all sorts of foggy things. So... You and I, I think we met originally on Twitter, if I'm correct. Is that right? Probably Twitter, yes. I think so. I've been on Twitter since about 2010, I think. Yeah, I think so. We must have connected on Twitter. And then more recently, we've, we're both on the tea and coffee um, support group that uh, Sammy and Jason do. Absolutely, yes. Which is great. Uh, what, what, what do you think about that? Uh, support group. I think it's fantastic, the things, the things they do. Well, it's, uh, I think it's um, a, a good thing to have. It, it provides that sort of social connection um, that, that one needs. Yeah. Particularly at this time with the sort of COVID and lockdown and stuff. Um, I think it could, um, it would be nice to have it running for um, a bit longer, but it's it's useful to I think have it to say constrained. Yeah, I, I think. think so one of the big problems I find with um, with the video conferencing where they're used for sort of meetings like that is as the number of people go up, um, it kind of gets difficult to to um, to run because you'll get a lot of people who are um, will be very very quiet. Yeah, that that is the problem with the bigger the bigger group meetings like that. You do, it, it's hard to let everybody have a voice. Sometimes, yeah, the shy ones keep quiet and vice versa. But I mean, yeah. I, I've I've met a lot of you know I've, I've I've seen a lot of people in there in that which I would have never have had a video connection with other than through tea and coffee. I would have only known them, you know, on social media just going back and forth with chats on there. So it's really nice to actually see people's faces and, you know, on, on a video. And the same, the same with the one that you do on a Friday, which is um, TGIF, I think you call it, don't you? I call it TGIF. Originally, um, 
um, started as a morning, Friday morning thing. <clears throat> and oh, really? I called, and I called it um, Petra's Coffee Cart. Oh, nice. Okay. And um, that started back in April. And, and the reason why it was called a coffee cart is uh, I was basing it on my experience when I worked in New York. And you get little small and carts would, uh, would be along the, um, the roadside and you would pick up your coffee and your, um, your bagel and go into your office. And coffee carts would be there sort of during the morning. And so my concept was, you know, you people come out in the different offices and start chatting to each other as they're queuing at the coffee cart to get their um, their coffee. Yeah. Coffee and muffin or coffee and, uh, and bagel. Coffee and a donut mainly, I think. But uh, wasn't overly. I had a few people, but I wasn't over. I wasn't overly popular. I sort of pitched it for. Uh, about um, sort of ten thirty in the morning. In other words, when people would typically go for coffee. Yeah. Uh, but um, no, didn't quite catch on. So I um, moved over uh, in uh, in July to um, my TGIF in the afternoon. I've always um, get a lot of people, but I usually get. Uh, um, Sort of six to eight people, and occasionally um, it picks up towards 20. And we typically get anywhere between one and four people coming in from the US. Um, um, uh, occasionally, I get a couple of people coming in from um, Europe, sort of from Germany and, uh, and Austria. And, uh, Plus, of course, we get people across the UK, and because it, I, I get a usually get a couple of allies come on as well, which is quite which makes life interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the past few um, meetings that I've been on, there's been a lady from the states. I, I don't remember her name. She's written a book recently. Oh, well, yep, that's right. That's Amber Rose Washington. Amber Washington, yeah. Now I've I do I have downloaded a book from Amazon, but I've not had a chance to read it yet. Have you have you actually read that? Have you had a chance yeah, to read it? Halfway halfway through, it's actually quite nicely written. Um, it, it, it describes her um, her early life, um, yeah, through actually transitioning and coming out and then living living as a as herself. And um, there's an awful lot in it. So many many. Um, trans people will relate to um, particularly trans women because she's a trans woman but um, yeah uh, the, the trans man would recognize a lot of the, the things just changing the um, the context i mean you know having if you didn't do your tgif you know we, none of us have had the opportunity to talk to her i mean it just shows uh, you know how good these support groups online support groups are at the moment for you know, connecting the community together and giving us an opportunity to talk to people like Amber. It's really quite well, good. What happened there, of course, is that um, um, here in Suffolk, we have a thing called um, Suffolk Gender Explored, which is um, part of um, Suffolk LGBTQ um, forum. And um, 
when we were um, pre-lockdown meeting, um, one of the people that um, came along to it was um, um, a lady by the name of Micah, who was a USAF person, and uh, but she's now gone back to the States. But um, she um, went to the States earlier in 2020 for her, um, um, for her bottom surgery. Yeah. And um, she met Amber at the, uh, in, the, um, in the same hospital because Amber was in for the same surgery. Oh, right. I didn't realise they were they met in so hospital at the same time. Yeah, so it's from... Uh, so it's from Micah that I got to know Amber. Um, Micah then asked me if I would, um, um, if you like, take a copy of the book and read it, which I did. I actually have a copy that's signed by Amber, <laughs> which is nice. Oh, well, that's nice, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, it's gone on from, from there. And she's a, a, a great person to have on that one because you've got such a huge, um, range of experience so uh, yeah and she has some really interesting stories to tell and experiences to share with us it, it really is fascinating some of the things she talks about well sort of between her and um, Billy and uh, Billy Morping um, they, they they really do um, line them up for uh, an online discussion like that yeah <laughs> absolutely so are you originally from Brighton and you're now living in Ipswich? Is that have I got that correct? Yeah, I was born in Brighton um, in the back end of 1946. That's quite some time ago. Yeah. Um, my my dad died when I was um, about four months old. Uh, he had been a, um, a prisoner of war uh, with the Japanese, so he was in Singapore. And he died, I, I, I guess, of um, wounds and other things that were inflicted on him. But at least he got back to the UK and, um, and uh, created me, <laughs> which is nice. Um, my mum then sort of moved around a bit and eventually settled just outside of Brighton, uh, a village called uh, Henfield, and uh, just before I was five. So, then I was sort of brought up in the Hanfield village. It's about some 12 miles away from Brighton. Uh, and uh, I uh, went through um, uh, night school, then uh, day release, and eventually <coughs> um, went off to do a degree with what is now uh, Portsmouth University. And uh, Finished the um, finished the degree and then worked in the regional headquarters of um, what was British Telecom, um, which was based in Brighton. So that would have been in what seventy two seventy three, and then I um, got promotion and moved up to uh, London and worked in telecommunications headquarters and. Uh, because of my degree, uh, the group I was with um, actually did approvals of non-BT kit that could be connected to BT systems. And right. I therefore got my sticky fingers 
into um, the experimental packet switch system, X25, for the geeks who might be listening. Um, and uh, all of that kind of, uh, sort of electronic stuff. Uh, I did one of the early approvals on uh, IBM's computerized um, telephone exchange. Um, I then got headhunted by Chrysler International. Um, so that was sort of um, 76, 77. I joined Chrysler International as a internal telecoms consultant. And I was there when in Chrysler, the UK, and that went sort of um, airship. Um, and then joined the you know, computer services in the um, 79 through to about 82. And one of the things I did with Unilever um, was uh, I and uh, my boss, we um, brought into the UK what's, what's in turn the transaction telephone, i.e. you go and buy something in the shop, you present your credit card, and the credit card goes through the machine, you get an automatic authorization. So you blame me for that. <laughs> I'll try and remember that next time. Um, so, uh, yeah, so when we did that, I also took um, an American um, uh, data, data system, um, data network system, and took it through uh, approval and um, connected it, um, got it connected up to various networks. So back in 82, you had the, um, the what was called the public packet switch system. You had the international packet switch system and you had um, uh, Euro, Euronet, which was a, a, a packet switch data network that um, ran around Europe and connected up universities and various research labs and of course Unilever who I was working for obviously had research labs. So that was, um, that was fascinating. I then uh, joined um, um, JP Morgan in London as an international consultant and the, the team I was with looked after the, the telecoms for, for them across Europe. South America, Asia Pacific, etc. And in that role, um, I oversaw the installation of the first data network across Europe and went back to the US. Then brought in an experimental um, data system which was uh, allow clients to um, access and do electronic banking. And we are talking electronic banking, going into bank accounts, things like that. But of course, that was corporate clients. And um, then I went um, then we um, went through the whole process of doing a brand new data network. So we did the request for information, request for proposal, um, vendor visits, contract letting. And then I was invited to um, would I like to work in New York for a bit? So then it's over from very early 1987 to the 
the uh, very back end of 1990, took my family over there. And one of the things I did there is I extended the network out into the Asia Pacific region. And I also moved the, um, the hub, the central hub of the network from the building that we were originally in to the brand new headquarters building, which is in 60 Wall Street. So that was, um, um, came back to the UK, so back in 1992. And um, I was invited, um, would I like to join internal audits, which I thought about for oh, about one nanosecond and said yes and joined um, a very small audit group that, um, that did um, that audited um, IT systems and networks across Europe. So I got my hands on um, what's called the back systems and uh, SWIFT, all of that kind of stuff, transborder trading. And uh, eventually I was um, offered the door with a large payout in uh, 1995. Um, by a large payout, I mean I got a, a year's salary, I got a year's worth of outplacements, that kind of thing, set up on my own, and actually made more money in my first year on my own than I was making after tax um, with um, JP Morgan. So I thought, okay, we're doing all right. Well, that, that makes sense. And um, so, I, um, apart from joining um, and being headhunted into the odd company, um, I've been more or less running on my on my own. So you're so, a, you act as a consultant these days, do you? I am a consultant. Yes. Yeah. It's it's. I'm I'm not a, a technician. I can do work as a technician, but I usually have a handbook to my to my side. <laughs> So, I mean, so throughout your career, you've always been in telecommunications and networking systems and that networks, kind of thing. Telecommunications network systems. One of the, when I did my degree, um, one of my majors was computer design. Um, so, which was quite early on, if you think about it. And uh, so I've um, always had this, um, this, this touch with, um, with computers. And I, can I build um, Linux servers? Yeah. Does it um, does it push my buttons? No, but I can still do it. <laughs> uh, I was one of the very um, very early adopters of the Microsoft NT, and the reason for that, of course, is that if you're consulting, particularly if you're consulting with um, things like um, security, on um, security of data, security of networks that you really do have to have a, a pretty reasonable ground in, in what your clients are using. Unfortunately, yeah. that is not always the case. It's not always the case. So are you, I mean, you obviously sound like you're an expert in this field. You've, you've spent your entire career working in various companies and various important sounding roles there. I mean, forgive me, because I'm not really that techie, but can you just explain what the difference is between kind of infosec and cybersecurity? I mean, I know they're not exactly the same, but I think infosec probably lives under the umbrella of cybersecurity. Um, the other way around, actually. Oh, right. 
umbrella term actually is information assurance. Right. And it, and it says, and it does what it says on the tin. You assure that information is correct, uh, available at the right time, and can only be seen and interacted with by the right people. Um, information security takes that down um, more towards um, um, the IT side of life. In other words, data living inside computers and things like that. And um, cyber security, um, I think uh, a lot of us in the, in the industry accept the term, um, but it is more of a marketing term and it's something that the media love. Um, yeah. But really, it's the same. The same. It really is um, security within the IT arena. But yeah, so InfoSec is really kind of information security, whereas something like ISMS is more to do with information yeah. management systems. Um, yes, but it's all it's all part of it. Um, but the, the key thing that comes out of InfoSec, uh, and that is not only are you looking at the, should we say, the cyber security aspects, that is the IT side of it, you're also looking beyond that. You're looking at the, if you like, the skill set of the people running the systems. Um, and you are looking at the, um, the, the broader aspects of my IT system may be, uh, may be tight and, and well controlled. Um, but because my company, um, we say might be like a big supermarket chain, does electronic um, interchanges with its suppliers. Now, it, how do you know that the, the suppliers IT is secure? Um, and you have to recognize that and that has to be brought into the whole realm of, um, of threat, uh, threat analysis threat run, threat and vulnerabilities, but also yeah. you have to understand exposure because you could have something that um, has a very, very low risk. Risk is nothing more than the probability that the threat source um, will successfully um, exploit the vulnerability. That's what, that's what risk is. And you may have something that is, from that point of view, has a very, very low risk. But if that risk actually occurred, if that a vulnerability was successfully executed, what would be the exposure? And in some cases, the exposure could be the company, yeah. the total loss of it. And that is something that is generally missing from when you do cyber security in, in its purest form. Well, I mean, it's a it's a fascinating subject, and you know, it, I think it can be quite complicated for the general public to understand at times. Oh, it, it is, and that's that. I think is the the issue. You've got to always find the 
a reasonable sound bite that yeah. you can understand. But um, we know that it's you know, a little bit deeper than that. So it's, yeah. yeah, I think most most people would only really be touched by it when when you start talking about the uh, GDPR, General Data Protection yeah. Regulations, and you know how individuals' personal information is you know, kept securely. Well, I mean, that, um, we've got another six month um, period with the EU over the UN GDPR, yeah. um, which if the UK cannot achieve legal equivalency with EU, then that's going to um, cause um, many companies that either have um, clients in Europe or employ EU staff members in the UK or both, they are going to find themselves from having to um, uh, do, do some interesting um, things and it's going to be a bit costly for some companies. I mean, we're going to have to have an equivalent system in the UK, aren't we? Well, we already have it with the Data Protection Act 2018, which enshrines um, GDPR into UK law, but nevertheless, um, there's got to be negotiations completed over the next six months to um, get that turned into um, legal equivalence with the EU. And yeah. It's one of the, the things of Brexit. It's um, the, the transition period, whilst it, people think it may have finished. Um, You've got the transition period for the GDPR. You've got another transition period <coughs> that will be going on over discussions over fish, uh, etc. So um, you know, the, that baby hasn't sung yet. Indeed. And so, <laughs> so you have also written some articles for Computer Weekly. I, I, I have. I started in April 2012. And I, I do an average of sort of nine or ten a year. Oh, wow, that's quite a lot. So how long have you been doing that? As I said, since April 2012. Oh, since 2012, okay. Oh. And how, oh. how, did you, how did you first get into doing that? Were you approached by them? I was approached by them. Um, but I used to run, um, be on one of the DCS committees. And uh, the committee I was on, one of the things it was focusing uh, on was um, um, identity, people's identity, and how do you um, prove identity? How do you use identity in the modern, um, should say, connected world? And um, the committee published um, four yearbooks covering the, all of our work. So each year, what we had discussed would be put up and written up and put into into a yearbook. So, so that is that I find is a very it's a fascinating area. Um, so and do they do they actually pay you to do these uh, articles? Yeah. Or it's uh, all there free. Is a, there is a volunteer. A volunteer. Mm -hmm. it it gets published, um, say, in Computer Weekly under what's called the Security Think Tank. I intend to have a read of some of those because it's a fascinating subject. I'm, 
I'm sure it's online too. I can probably go and find Thank that you. somewhere. So if you or any of the listeners were to pop along to um, Google Bing or your other favorites and search engines, you should be able to pop in my name, Petra Willem, and either Computer Weekly or Tech Target, so those four. And that will take you to a landing page within Tech Target that um, shows all of my articles and you can oh. then and read. Oh, I shall, I shall definitely have a look. Sounds very fascinating stuff. I may not understand it all, but I'll have a read. I sort of typically, um, it's an interesting discipline because um, we, we, we are fed the sort of the discussion area um, by, by the security editors and uh, computer weekly. And uh, we sort of typically aim to write the articles for around about 600 words-ish. Um, and that's actually quite an interesting discipline to, to write on a subject and just keep yourself concise. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Not easy. Uh, that's not easy. Um, but the one for um, that I've just submitted, that actually was just a few words shy of 1,200, mainly because there was no other way of um, addressing the subject. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I shall I shall have a read of those and let you know what I, what I learn. Yes. So, just moving on from uh, infosec stuff, you you and I have something in common in the fact that we both transitioned quite late in life. I I was in my mid fifties when I started what I consider to be my official transition. And I believe you were in your 60s when, when that happened for you. Um, I mean, could you could you just talk about how you, you know, at what point in your life did you realise that there was something not quite right? Well, I think you in, know. Common, in common with pretty much all of them, uh, people who are, should we say, gender variant, um, um, one appreciates when you're you're young, typically sort of four or five, and you you, you start off in in um, infant school, that you're not quite the same as all the other um, children who are the um, same assigned sex at birth. So, like you and I, we were assigned male at birth, basically simply on somebody taking a very cursory glance at our genitalia and saying, yeah. That's a boy, um, and uh, it's, and everything from, from society then rolls on from that. So you go to um, you start school, um, you're in short, short hair, you know, you're a boy, um, but you sort of feel as if you're not quite right. But of course, particularly when I was so small. Um, absolutely zero in the newspapers about the whole thing. And yeah. as we went through school, um, primary, secondary school. In secondary school, you probably got, became aware that occasionally you got a, an article in the newspaper about drag queens or transvestites, and it was the, the mucky end of the sex industry. Yeah. Um, uh, 
what happened to me was sort of the, uh, I think I must have realised something because uh, I got bundled off to uh, an all boys secondary school rather than go with the rest of the, um, the class to the, uh, to the co-ed secondary school. So, um, yes, that didn't do anything for me, did it? Um, um, yes, yeah, so then we um, started, um, started um, work as an apprentice at um, 16. Um, so that was with what was then known as the Postalist Telephones. And of course, we, um, we then bumped into um, uh, things like the Parade magazine, with Scanty Ladies, etc. Um, yeah, so I've sort of moved on, say, um, night school day release, and um, then I opted to um, to do a four-year sandwich, um, four-year um, in sandwich um, degree course at Portsmouth, and uh, so I started that in um, that would have been um, sixties. I think it was 67, and I graduated in 71. So, I mean, during, during like the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, I mean, there was really not a lot of information available on transgender issues, if any at all, really. I well, mean, true, yes. Um, absolutely. And, uh, do, you, do, do you feel that's, you know, one of the reasons why you didn't actually come out publicly until you were much older. Absolutely, because, um, okay, when I married Lorraine, you before uh, I was married, before you were married, that I did, um, um, I think we, no, I use the words cross-dress, I mean, when we were when yeah. it's close, because we're not cross-dressing. That means that has to be said and underlined. Um, but what I found was wearing, um, well, putting women's clothes on was, to me, uh, an absolute huge relief, relief mentally. Yeah. Um, I was being me. Um, but if we were married. Um, we put it down at the time because there was no other inclination to my having transvestite tendencies, but that never ever felt right and it probably wasn't until probably um, the early 2000s which is when um, we started getting um, broadbands coming into the home and therefore the price of connecting to the internet dropped. I've been on the internet myself um, from 95 when I started out on my own but of course, it was modems in those days. It was dial-up. Yeah, I don't think I had my first computer until I, it was probably ninety-eight, somewhere around there. It was so it was expensive dialing up. Yeah, and slow. And of course, you didn't have very much, um, should we say, you know, information sources no. on it in those days. It was mainly used. Well, commercial, it was, it was email. Yeah, yeah. Once you got 
to broadband rolling out. Um, that, that really changed it. I think for business, um, the, the game changer was in 93, 93, um, when the um, HTTP, HTTP um, came out, Berners-Lee and the, uh, what was the uh, Mosaic um, browser. Because he developed that so that um, um, scientific uh, documents um, um, could be shared and read across different universities over this, over the, over the, um, that embryonic um, internet that existed. Yeah. Once you came into 2000, 2001, um, suddenly it became cheap for people at home to be able to access. And then um, you started getting websites appearing. You started getting commerce for people at home, home shopping. And so through um, the Nauters, you got more and more websites coming up. And one of the first ones I found was, um, uh, was it, uh, Susan's Place. It's still yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and of course, towards the end of the Nauters, you, you got the um, mobile phone sort of went up from 1G to 2G to 3G. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, you got the migration of the what was the personal digital device, the old PDAs and that, yeah. into the phones, and you got the smartphones, and then you got some uh, social media, and so towards the end of the noughties, you got this. So you you suddenly got this. It's a perfect storm. Yeah, plethora of information. And, and what happened with the social media, of course, is that. Um, people who were, you know, transgender or, or within the LGBTQ spectrum suddenly found other people. And yeah, we started really, to be able to make connections and things. And we then realised that we weren't a unique one-off thing. We were actually part of the community and we were not that particularly rare. Uh, and uh, and of course we started sharing. Oh, I found this web, this um, interesting website, and the information then really started falling forward. So, from my point of view, um, one of the early things I um, found in oh, that two thousand one, I suppose, is what was called the um, um, uh, if I can pronounce it correctly, the Cogliati. Um, um, questionnaire, which was a questionnaire being put together by um, some psychologists, ran to about 250 questions, which were multi, multi choice answers. And each answer had um, a particular value. Okay. So if you answered, uh, if one of the answers had a value one, that was a value one. If one of the answers that you chose had a value of four, you know, four. And you added up, you, you just 
you know, you just did this 250 questions. You then went through and added up your score. And the idea was that if the score was um, uh, on the negative side, you were male. If it was on the positive side, you were female. But it had um, section divisions. And so if you scored so many points in the positive, okay, you were sort of gender variant. And um, I was expected to come out as gender neutral, believe it or not. But, where, where, uh, did you, where did you end up? Um, I've got a score of about 215, which put me on the cusp between transgender and, and transsexual. Now, it's, I've never actually heard of that questionnaire. Is that still something that's it's still not available now? You can still find it. I'll um, see if I can find a link for you. No, just, just for kind of interest, just to yes, it's, um, see how so, current it is these days. So what I did is having... I went through it again, and no, that was that was my score. And um, I have to admit, what I did, did is I put it in one of my files and buried it. It was um, denial. I can't do it. Yeah, I think we've all done that in various different ways. I mean, I know I I suppressed my you know, my feelings for decades, you know, it was something that you, it's kind of like living a double life where you have this secret and you, you suppress it. You don't tell anybody. I mean, I'm sure you had a, probably a similar experience. Absolutely. And so that's, that's what it was, but it was once we came into the end of the noughties, beginning of the, of the teens, and I suddenly made started making connections with people like yourself and that and realizing that we were not unique, we were not weird. Um, we were quite a natural phenomena. Yeah. Um, and then we began to feel to to come to the acceptance of, uh, of my um, my transgender um, being. So was there a, was there a moment where you where you came out, or was it more of a kind of a gradual thing for you? Well, I suppose to a certain extent it was a little bit gradual. But in two thousand fifteen, I was um, really very very ill, and I was hospitalised um, for a month from uh, sort of late July and August. And I read a, um, a blog by Jenny Bowling, and it was. Um, her moment is what she called her glass shard moment, where she was in her male mode in um, Dublin. She was with a family because um, she's an academic and she was there on a two year academic thing. Um, they, a, a glass had broken in the kitchen and they'd swept it all up and they thought it was fine. And then a few days later, they said, a delivery man arrived at the door. And so again, he padded across the kitchen barefoot and found the glass shard that hadn't been swept up. And she thought, well, it can work its way out. But um, about three weeks later, with a very, very painful um, foot, very swollen, went off to the a &E, where they found the glass shard, took it out, and it was an instant relief 
And that was her moment of deciding I'm transgender, I've got to come out. My moment was in hospital reading her blog on doubts. And that was my glass shard moment. Um, yeah. Because I was really, was very, very ill. I think the family were very worried that I wouldn't survive. So, so there we go. Um, so came out, discussed it with your own. Um, one of the babies uh, I got to know over social media came over to see me in, the, in January 2016. I got introduced to what is the Norfolk Oasis group. Um, didn't pluck up courage to go to them until August 2016, but I went with the brain. Um, went fully dressed, um, which was lovely. Um, that happened, you know, I, did, I didn't give a care if the neighbour saw me or not, actually, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, been with, so I've been a, a, an Oasis member ever since. And um, since lockdown, uh, I've been running the monthly meetings on Zoom for them. So, right. uh, uh, so that's been, been ongoing. So you, you've been married to Lorraine for about 48 years, is, is that correct? Oh, well. So, I mean, during that, that time when you were in hospital, did was that the first time Lorraine knew about what was going on? Well, she knew about this crossroads because she knew before we were married. Right. That that's what happened. So she's known throughout the whole marriage. Yes, but yeah. it was um, coming out as transgender was the, the new thing. Right, so she knew knew of all the the other, the other things, but not yeah. the actual terminology as such as transgender, I guess, until... What she found later. in the Oasis group, because it is, it's open, it's for people who are transgender, their friends and family, um, the, uh, what she found was actually talking to other trans women was more valuable to her than talking to the wives that were there. Yeah. Interesting. So, so I mean, you also have two children, don't you? Yes. Um, yeah. Obviously, they must be grown up now, and you probably have some grandkids by now, I would think. I have a couple of grandkids, yep. So uh, is all the family kind of okay with everything? Um, yes, although the oldest son is, um, as he says, there's um, baby steps. You know, he supports, he's supporting, um, yeah. but he's baby steps and he still hasn't quite put his head around it. I don't so he's, he's, he's getting there and he's he's being supportive. Yeah. I think I think a lot of the time it's with family members, it's it's more of a, a learning experience for them than it is for us when we finally come out and tell them. You know, I think they go through probably several months, even years, of, of coming to terms with things at times. Yes, exactly. And uh, so it obviously comes as a bit of a shock, but there we go. Yeah. So uh, you, you've also had your moment of fame, haven't you? You were on an ITV News uh, programme back in 2019. 2019, yes. The, and it was uh, how you became Petra. Exactly. Um, it was um, in uh, Transgender Awareness Week in 2019, um, the <clears throat> Anglia 
ITV Anglia News um, ran three news items that week, that's the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The first two looked at a, a young trans man. The first one was the young trans man before he'd had um, top surgery. And the second one was after he had surgery. So it was done over a period of time as we appreciate. And I was the third um, um, news item. Uh, and because uh, obviously uh, trans women are at the other end of the age spectrum. Um, but uh, that went down very well. Yeah, I, I did watch it and I watched it again recently. I have not seen the other um, stories, but yeah, it, it did come across really well. It was a, it was a very well put together article, I thought. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of my life in three and a half minutes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, there was I mean, that. That's, so that was in 2019, and then it's between 2019 and current day. Mm -hmm. I mean, how how has your kind of let's call it official transition been? Have, have you managed to get yourself a, a decent GP and you, you've, have you been to a GIC at all yet? Yes, what, um, uh, what, <clears throat> what happened was uh, I talked to my, my GP uh, at the, sort of the back end of um, uh, 2017, yes, 2017. Um, but because of the um, waiting times for the NHS GICs. Yes. I wanted to um, start off private, so I went to the London Transgender Clinic right. and I had my first um, um, consultation there in January of 2018, uh, which I took the rainy on to as well. Um, I had uh, a total of from four um, um, sessions with them over uh, over a year, and the last session, which was in January um, 2019, uh, I was given a um, I was examined, physically examined, and then given um, a prescription, first prescription for um, hormones. My uh, GP had um, uh, a support care package um, in place with the London Transgender Clinic. Yeah. Um, but um, I'd also, the GP had also put in for NHS as well. Yeah. And um, my first um, uh, consultation with the NHS GIC, which was the Tavistock and Portman one, and was actually in the February of 2019. And it was quite interesting that they had my reports from the London Transgender Club. Quite interesting. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Because that normally doesn't happen, does it? Because private and NHS don't really talk to each other. But I guess in that particular case, because I think most of the people who work for um, London Transgender Clinic are actually... NHS people as well. No, indeed. I also work for gender care as well. Yeah, yeah. Not confused with gender GP. Yes, gender GP is, is the one, is the private one I used. And still, I still do use, but my, my GP has taken over everything now. So, I mean, that's really good for me. 
So, yes, you, yeah. I mean, your GP sounds like a, a supportive GP yeah. and are working with um, the GIC as they should. Indeed. So, um, so that's all in place. My GP is also the director of um, postgrad training of the local um, NHS bus. Yeah. Now, um, is that is that how you got into doing your um, training presentations for GPs? Indeed, it was. All right. Indeed. So that was um, that was last year, last November. Um, of course, the, um, the presentation that I used, um, well, it was originally just purely a talk that I gave at um, Suffolk Pride in 2019. Um, I then polished it up and um, put together a decent PowerPoint to back it. And I gave that as a... Um, uh, at a public meeting in Hadley, which is the local town to me, um, in March of um, uh, 2020. And subsequently, um, I developed the, um, the PowerPoint, <coughs> the talk, up yeah. and so we delivered it to the, to the GPs locally. It's also been delivered to three WIs now, and I've got some bookings for this year for another two WIs. So WI Women's Institute, I mean, they, they, are, they are quite well known as a, a supportive organisation. I mean, I don't uh, know how, yeah, you've obviously found that, that to be true. Yeah, absolutely. They are, they are very, very supportive. And uh, the WI that I belong to is called Incapable Evolution. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my next one will be um, delivered to the um, Iron Maiden WI. All right. So, I mean, you, you, you're continuing to do this presentation for new GPs and... As, as requested. Um, the, yeah. I've been um, um, offered to another NHS trust locally, but it's, nothing's happened with that yet. And the big problem, of course, is that the, um, the GPs, the training GPs, they're post-grad, and it's a three-year post-grad course. So typically, you only get to talk to the GPs once in the three years. <laughs> so you're kind of presented as a as a module, training module within the, their yeah. training, I guess. Yeah. And of course, the, um, it was done with, um, uh, NHS um, um, Zoom, so they've got a recording of it. Yeah. And I have a recording of it, of course, is that um, whilst I may have actually spoken to 32 GPs in my, in my talk when I did it, um, there were a few more who were out in the woods, and so they could watch it offline. Yes, sir. So, I mean, so you're trying to I mean, continue with that and, and also do the presentation at other yes. facilities. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, um, I think it's it's amazing work that you're doing that. I mean, you know, you think about the typical GP, they really don't have a lot of information on the topic of transgender healthcare. So, you know, get, getting in there early with younger GPs who are just coming through. I, mean, I think it's it's uh, vitally important that you know all all GPs are trained up in this 
field. It's actually quite interesting. The research I've done is they actually unearthed. Um, I would say I, I, not a massive amount. There is quite a bit of information on transgender and looking after transgender available to to GPs. And it's um, just the fact that um, you know you can leave a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. But the point is, if they don't know if there's water there in the first place, how do they know? Yeah, and uh, and I guess the fact that there are these separate GICs where all this transgender healthcare is supposed to be kind of looked after. Maybe some GPs kind of don't pursue it because they just kind of assume that it's being done somewhere else. I think if, if the transgender healthcare was done in GP um, surgeries, it would be it would be much better for all, all around, I believe. Oh, absolutely. And I think the, the aim must be <clears throat> within... Um, surgeries or healthcare, healthcare centres, that you have at least one GP who specialises yeah. in the trans. I mean, they, they still need access to, you know, um, endocrinologists as as normal, um, but, but the GP can can do that directly. I'm sure you, you know, you could you could probably eliminate the GICs or or use them for a different purpose, such as you know supporting people from a a psychological point of view, maybe. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Leave, because, leave the doctors to do the medical side of things. Because you've got the indigo um, pilot that's going on up in the Greater Manchester area. Yeah, which, which is, I'm actually supposed to be getting invited to at some point. I've not received my official invitation yet, but they are. They have told me that it's it's due in January, with a, a first meeting probably in April. And of course, there's moves on that foot now in the east of England. Um, so yeah. Gendered intelligence and um, out canvassing for views. And so I've circulated the, <clears throat> that information around the um, Oasis um, group, etc. Yeah, I mean, if, if this Indigo um, pilot scheme is successful, you know, I think that would be probably a, a great way to move forwards and try and eliminate some of the horrendous uh, waiting times currently. Yes. You know, if you can imagine every GP had some information rather than just eight or nine GICs, you know, it would vastly improve the numbers. Well, typically, as I understand it, looking at some of the posts over the years is that um, trans people have to tell the GP well, you need to go to a GIC and then explain what a GIC is and then tell them which one to go to and what it's yeah. investment. Yeah. It's, um, so it, it really is um, it really is a, an education effort. Indeed, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, we've, we've run over our hour slightly. But um, mm -hmm. I'd just like to say a big thank you for coming on and uh, telling us all about your life's experiences and things. It's very, very kind of you to spend the time. Okay, we can always edit bits out and you can take, take the soapbox out if you like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll leave it all in. It's all, it's all good. So I have one final question for you and you probably already know what it is. It's uh, at the end of the podcast, you have a little jingle 
So you can have a goat, a cow, or a trumpet thromp. Oh, probably a trumpet. <laughs> Sorry? Probably a trumpet. A trumpet thromp. You're the first person to request the trumpet thromp. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else has chosen a goat so far, but okay, I will. I will make sure that happens for you. <laughs> and I look forward to talking to you later today on uh, TGIF. I'm assuming there is one today. There is indeed, yeah. The data is out there. Um, you check your email. Yes, I think I have received an email. So I always, I always like the end of your TGIFs because we always know it's coming to an end because Lorraine shows up with a couple of drinks. <laughs> and that's the sign, that's the sign to everybody needs to stop talking because we need our drinks. <laughs> Indeed. It's kind of the perfect ending. Okay, well, it's lovely talking to you, Vicky. And, uh, yes, thank you very much. And it's great talking to you too. Please. I shall hopefully get everything up onto the podcast later today. Okay, good okay. thank you very much. Bye-bye. La 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 la